Yeah, thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are good. And God, as we just come around your word now, we pray, Lord, that you would speak a word to each and every one of us, as only you can do. Lord, we pray for a transformative word this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak through my words. Lord, let them be your words. We just thank you that you're good. And I just know that there's people in here who are struggling to sing those words right now. But God, I pray that by the time we get done, there would be a powerful confession that God, you are good. You are present. You never leave us nor forsake us. When you said, surely I am with you to the very end of the age, you meant it. You are bringing beauty in our brokenness. You are making a mosaic out of our mess. And so we love you and we praise you. And we're ready to receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, how is everybody? Going all right? That's fantastic. It's wonderful to have you here. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave, and I am one of the pastors here at Hills, um, and it, it is great to have you with us this morning. It's great to be here. Um, just a couple of quick things. We had our first, we launched our first growth track yesterday. For those of you who don't know what that is, basically we've built a course um, to help people connect, help people feel a sense of belonging. You can see it over there, preaching around the four Bs of community, belonging, believing, becoming, and building. And uh, we had such a great afternoon yesterday where, I don't know, we had 40-odd people come along who were relatively new to the church, just, and just a chance to get to know who we are, what our heart is, what we're all about, and build that sense of belonging and connection. So thank you to everyone who came along. Thank you to all of those who have helped make that happen. Um, can we just give those people a round of applause? And if you're someone who is, yeah, you're visiting or you're new or you're, you're feeling like, Han, how do I connect? How do I, how do I get to know this place? How do I get stuck into this place, then please come along to Growth Track. Come over, um, see someone at the welcome desk. We'll, we would love to sort of just get your details and connect you up to that. And I think you'll find it to be a really valuable and worthwhile and useful thing to do. And everyone who went there yesterday, I think, would agree with that. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Hey, we are, uh, we are in a series. We're about to finish the series. Today's the last day where we're looking at Mosaic which is our Matthew 1 series, which is the genealogy of Jesus. And I told you, uh, what was that, seven, six weeks ago, that when we first started reading this, you're going to think I was drunk for wanting to preach six sermons on this, 17 verses. But I pray that you've been richly blessed as we've looked at these five women. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, again, I haven't been around. Basically, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, writes a genealogy, which is basically names. It's a list of names. And in those lists of names, he does something very un-Jewish, and he writes five women's names. And even more un-Jewish, instead of writing the heroes of the faith, he writes these very interesting names. He puts women who are, have been through all sorts of stuff in their life, um, prostitutes, their widows. These are the least, when it comes to what the Jews would expect 
would be in a line of a Messiah, of the Savior, of this awaited, long-awaited king that they were longing for, why would these women's names be in there? And so we've had a look at Tamar, and we've had a look at Rahab, and we've had a look at, um, 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 who's the next one? Ruth, and we've looked at Mary. And today we come to a different name. So if you've got your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can open your phone or we'll put it up here for you so you can follow along. And for the last time, we're going to read these names. Who's enjoyed reading the names? Who's enjoyed looking at the names? Come on, somebody. Amen. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, everyone say Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, everyone say Rahab. Boaz the father of of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Somebody say, Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And you can imagine that the Jews are finally now saying, praise God. They're like, oh, finally. Finally, Matthew, you've said it right. Finally, you've landed on a good name. I don't know why you mucked about with these other strange women putting them in there. It's an odd thing to do, but now you've got it. Now you've said David. We love David. This is King David. This is Israel alongside Moses, their greatest hero. Right? This is a guy who didn't just slay a giant when he was a boy. Like, he had victory after victory after victory, right? He was the one that they sung the song that Saul has slain his thousands, but David, he's slain his tens of thousands. He was David. He was ruddy and handsome, the scripture tells us. This man was shredded, right? Like, he had it all going on. This is David. This is the man who just, he could pick up a sword and he would make powerful, mighty, incredible men just feel like little children in the principal's office. You know, he was a ferocious, powerful, incredible leader, one of the greatest military men in all of history. But more than that, not only was he ferocious and powerful and mighty, but the man wrote poetry, ladies. He wrote poetry that would make you weep. And not only did he write poetry, he played the harp. <laughs> the same hand that clung the sword and slay the thousands just delicately sat there, just gently picking the, the, the harp so that people who were stressed and, you know, Saul in his worst moments would go, oh, David, play it again. This is David. This is, 
this is King David. Yeah, all the Jews are going, oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's who our Messiah will be like. That's the kind of king we're looking for. And then look what Matthew does. This is so interesting. He goes after saying David, and they're all cheering and they're excited. He then says, David was the father of Solomon. Oh, yes, Solomon. He had a great, mighty kingdom full of wealth, all his wisdom wives and all the other stuff that was going on. And then he says, the mother, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uh, excuse me, Matthew. What are you doing? We were rolling, man. Like we were with you. We were, we were moving somewhere. What are you doing? Why would you darken David's door with that woman? Why would you put Uriah's wife? We're finally going somewhere. We're fi- it finally makes sense. Yes, the Messiah is going to be like King David. That's our sort of king. Why would you now mention this woman? Why would you mention a woman that just takes us straight back in time to the worst, most sordid, disgraceful part of his life? Can't you do what all good other ancient historians do and just forget about his bad stuff and celebrate his good stuff? We kind of moved past that as a nation. We were excited about David. And here you are mentioning Uriah's wife, who, by the way, is a woman called Bathsheba. What is Matthew doing? Why the heck does he mention Uriah's wife? And I just... I just love what Matthew's doing because you can almost hear Matthew's heart just leaping off the page again and again as we have said over and over and over that what he's trying to do is he's trying to create a picture, he's trying to paint a picture, he's revealing something about the nature of this Messiah who is to come and the nature of the kingdom that he is coming to establish. And so what he's been trying to get these Jewish people to see and us to see is that our salvation, that our rescuer, that our king, that the one that we actually need is not the one who comes swinging the sword and everyone thinks, oh, look how magnificent and mighty you are. Actually, the beauty comes out of brokenness. That actually the power of God is in the perceived weakness of man. And he's saying, I'm showing you something about the kingdom. I'm showing you something about this Messiah that's different to every other king. You want that, David, but I'm showing you. This is what happens when when people like that. This is what happens to the kingdoms of men. This is what happens to the great kings. All of them fall and fail because they are human. But my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. And there's something about the Messiah who's coming that's different to what you expect. And this is a powerful word that he's dropping. And so by mentioning her name, he immediately takes the reader back to 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, the 11th and 12th chapter. So we're going to go there right now. And I'm not going to read two chapters of Scripture. But what I am going to do is I'm just going to, I'm going to, We'll introduce it, then we'll break it down a little bit, and then I'm going to show you a couple of things I feel like the Lord wants to reveal to us today. So let's go there. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. Until this time, David is 
dominating life. It's just win after win after win. He's gone through all sorts of turmoil and struggle in his life, but he is constantly coming out smelling like roses, right? And then something happens. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem when his entire army was out fighting his battle. Reminds you of a guy called Saul who was supposed to fight a giant and he left it to a young boy who is now the king. One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful and David said, uh, David sent someone to find out about her and the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her and she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. What is Matthew doing? Why would Matthew mention this woman? Why not just say Solomon, the son of David, and then move on? Because there's something so powerful in Bathsheba's story. You see, if you carry on the story, what you'll realize is that uh, not only did David get Bathsheba pregnant, but then he uh, murdered her husband. And you need to appreciate something. You see, Bathsheba's father, Eliam, is actually one of David's close um, counsellors. He's one of David's advisors, one of his trusted advisors. This is a man who loved David, was for David, was championing David's kingdom. This is like one of his ministers in parliament, right? And then um, Uriah, Uriah is one of David's mighty men. And those of you who read the Bible, you would know that David had 30 mighty men, like mighty, mighty men, who did profound, incredible things in war. They risked their lives every day for this man, David. They loved David. They loved him like a brother. They served him as their king. They were loyal to, to the death of their own life. And that is Uriah. So David takes Uriah's wife and a lion's daughter and he sleeps with her and he gets her pregnant then he murders Uriah and then he tries to cover the whole thing up and then when you get to chapter 12 or at the very end of chapter 11 the Bible says that what David had done displeased the Lord and then the Lord sends Nathan who's a prophet and Nathan just calls him out, which is a scary thing for a prophet to do, to come to a king like David and just call him on it. And then David repents, and we see that in Psalm 51, and then ultimately Bathsheba goes through this mourning process, and then they have Solomon. It's a really crazy story. It's one that you should read, and I just want to show you a couple of things in it. And the first one is this. We need to understand here that I think this has been taught wrong for a long time and it's time we corrected it, right? 
So often when you read about Bathsheba, it is told as if this is some sort of sordid affair. It's told as if, if, as if Bathsheba is out there bathing to try and seduce David. You know, like she's just wandering around in her fine self, naked, out in the yard being like, David, look at me. Hoping that the king might glance upon her and be like, oh, I can't resist your wiles and go down. It's, it, that's how it's been preached. It's been, it's been preached as if it's Bathsheba's fault, luring in the man of God. And the man of God has fallen because of the temptress. That is not what is happening here. The Bible says that Bathsheba was purifying herself from her period. Now, according to biblical law, if a woman had her period, she had seven days after where she had to go through a washing ritual so that she could enter the temple and worship. She is being righteous. And history and scholars will tell you that she did, this is, you don't do this naked, she is clothed. And this is a private, dignified act. The reason David sees is because he is on a rooftop of a palace which overlooks every other building and he has access into windows that no one else has and that he shouldn't have been there in the first place. He should have been at war with his troops. And David sees Bathsheba in her righteousness and is drawn to her. And then he does something. Not only does he look and gaze, he then sends for information. And he finds out that, hey man, this is your close advisor, your incredible friend, your loyal servant who's risked his life for you time and time and time again. Like, that's her family. You don't touch this woman, David. You've got all these other women going on. You do not touch this woman. She's married. Now, if you go near that, your own law that you're supposed to enforce means that you are punishable by death yourself. And still, what does David do? He sends for her. Now, let me, we're going to get real heavy in a moment. If this is your first time at Hills Baptist, welcome. We don't pull punches. But we need to get heavy just so you feel the gravity of this. Is this okay? Can I go heavy for a moment? So we're going, David, just pick, put yourself in, in Bathsheba's shoes. You're a young woman. You're married to a faithful servant of David who has probably spent his life telling her about this great king who he loves who he serves, who he has fought battles with, who he's willing to die for. He's probably told her stories of how righteous he is, how honorable he is, how much of an incredible, godly man he is. She knows David as being a man after God's own heart. This is her view of David. She would revere him, she would honor him, and most of all, she would trust him. And so David sends probably armed guards to her door to say, come and see me. You do not refuse the king. You do not in that moment say, no, nah, I'm right. You don't do that. She has no reason to not trust him. And so the guards come. She's probably thinking, my husband's at war. Oh no, what's happened? Is he dead? 
So she goes. And the next thing she knows, she's in David's bedroom. Now, whether or not we use the R word here, the Bible doesn't tell us. In other instances in Scripture, it's very clear. But whether this is non-consensual or consensual, what happens here, the Bible is very clear that it does not hold Bathsheba accountable. In the Bible's view, Bathsheba is innocent. On every account, it refers to David's sin. In every account, even in Psalm 51, David's own admission of sin, it is his sin, never hers. Never once. And I guess one way you can look at it, anytime there is a person in power and authority over someone who has no power and no authority, you could think of it as an adult and a minor, you could think of it as a teacher and a student. In any case, even if, even if she, seeing David and you know, being just, he's playing the harp for her and he's like looking fantastic and she has a moment, even if that happens, even if it is consensual, it's still not her fault. She is powerless, he is abusing his power. Do you understand what I'm saying right here? This is vitally important that we grasp this because the gravity of it says something about the nature of God, his kingdom, and the Messiah that is to come. Because what it's saying is that the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God, is different to the kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of men ultimately will use power and position for its own self-glorification and gain. The kingdom of God will choose sacrifice and submission in order to bring healing and life to the broken. Bathsheba in this moment is hard done by. Let me shift the mood. Have you ever felt hard done by? Have you ever been wronged by someone else? Have you ever felt like life has sometimes slapped you in the face when you weren't expecting it? You see, this is what Matthew's speaking into. When we were in primary, not primary school, high school, year eight, we went through a tripping phase where as a group of friends, what we would do just at any possible opportunity, we would just try and clip someone's feet together not with the intent purpose of making them fall onto their face, but you remember, if those of you who watch Friends, how Phoebe Buffay runs, and she would run like this, and it's funny, when someone gets tripped, they like, straight away do that, and you'd all have a bit of a chuckle, and then they'd get back to walking. So we went through this tripping phase where at any moment of any day, you had to be on your guard because someone was always trying to trip you and just whack your leg in so that you would do something silly, and then everyone would be like, hey, that was funny, and then off we go, Right? And so it was this constant thing. You ended up walking like this because you didn't want to get tripped. So you'd be just walking around the school like that. You'd be walking around the train station like that. So if someone tried to trip, like, bad luck, you can't get me. Until one day, what my father said to me all the time was, if you keep playing silly games, David, one day someone's going to get hurt. Who's heard that before? <laughs> one day we were lining up for class. I was standing next to my slightly pale friend, Paul, and one of our female friends started walking along. She wasn't doing the walk. And I thought, oh, I've got her. <laughs> so as she happened upon my vicinity, I very casually just clipped my foot out, 
sending her left leg cascading into her right leg, causing her to stumble. The thing that caused the issue was I didn't realise she had two arms full of books in preparation for what I still think is completely inhumane, where Temple Christian College give you a double, double lesson before recess. Anyone who went to Temple, say amen. It's like three hours without a break. So you had to carry all these books. So she's doing this. I clip her leg, and she just goes flying, landing on the ground, books everywhere. And it was, instead of giggles, everyone's like, and I felt terrible because I've seen my friend flying and she was not happy when she got up and she got up and before I could even sort of apologize and own it she just whips up spins around takes two steps towards me and slaps my friend Paul right in the face (laughs) and in that moment I'm like, (laughs) and Paul's like this, and our friend, she's turned around, she's stormed back into the classroom, and Paul's like this, he's just like, stayed there for about, it felt like forever, it was probably 10 seconds, and he's looked up to me with this look of complete bewilderment, (laughs) and I'll never forget what he said as his pale face now was distinctly marked with this glorious red hand. And he just looks at me and he goes, what the heck? (laughs) I think sometimes life is like that. We're just going about our business, completely unaware of what, you know, we're just taking care of our stuff. We're not hurting anyone. We're doing the right things. We're serving God. We're loving people. We're just going about business. And then one day life just walks up to you because of the decision of somebody else and slaps you in the face. What do you do when your dysfunction is the direct result of someone else's decision? What Matthew's speaking into here is where is God when God is absent? Where is God when you're there going, what the heck? Life has just slapped, I did nothing to deserve that. I'm supposed to have God, like I'm trying to be righteous, I'm doing the ceremonial washing, I'm loving my husband, I'm going about, and now this has happened. I'm standing in a room pregnant and my husband is dead all because of that guy, not because of me. Where's God in that? Where's God in the child who's dying of starvation? Where's God in the, the broken marriage because the husband just keeps running away? Where is God in just the mess of somebody else's making? Where's God in that? And what Matthew in this moment is saying, he's saying there is hope, friends, because the Messiah who is coming, Jesus who is coming, he is the answer in the middle of that mess. Jesus is with you. He is there. There is a word in there for you. There is hope. There is truth. There is love. There is a, he's a different kind of a king. He's with you. He's in it. 
He's not running off somewhere else. He's in it. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is I just want to give a word. I think there's a word here for the Davids. There's a word for the church. And there's a word for those of you who feel a bit like Bathsheba. Where is God in that mess? Where is God in the middle of a mess that so often might be someone else's making? Because if it's our mess, if it's our thing that we've caused, if it's our decision, you can kind of deal with that, can't you? You're like, you know what? I did that. I'll own that. I'll move forward in the grace of God. Sometimes we're left going, where the heck are you, God? And there's a word in it. I want to speak to the Davids for a moment. You see, what we see here David's on a rooftop when he should be at war. David's forgotten the fact that his greatest strength always came when he was weak. All his victories, all his might, all his power, all his fame, everything when he was experiencing the blessing of God was at the same time that he was wrestling with God, the same time when he was not comfortable, when he was, he was being pursued by Saul even unto death, like he was facing all sorts of trials in his life and that is actually when he was strong. The moment he thought he was strong, the moment he thought he didn't need God, the moment he just sent his troops off to war and he was sitting there in comfort and he was just being, I'm the king, I'll be here. That is the moment in his strength that he actually became weak. And there's a word here for us about righteousness. You see, the kingdoms of men and so often the desires of humanity are for comfort and for that fame, for notoriety, to achieve, to grow, to receive, to build up wealth, to build up a claim. That is the heart of humanity. And the message here is that no, you've got it wrong. Actually, power is made perfect in weakness. And that's the Messiah, that's the king who's coming. You see, Jesus in this moment is actually more of a picture of Uriah than he is a picture of David. Because David here is supposed to be the righteous one. He's the one who's supposed to be the king enforcing the law. He's the one who's supposed to be doing the right thing by his subjects. Instead, he's abusing his power like every other king. And then Uriah, the servant, is the one who's constantly obeying his king. He is obeying his king even unto death. He obeys his king. And there's a message here that Jesus is the better. You're right. Jesus is the one who will obey his father. He will obey even unto death so that we might have life. Uriah is more righteous than David. He's saying that Jesus is righteous. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And because Jesus pursued that kingdom, because he was obedient, Philippians 2, even unto death on a cross, God has exalted him. He is king. He is Lord. He is ruler. He is the Lord of your life. And when you trust him in the middle of your mess, you know that he is bringing you righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So you can be sitting there thinking, what the heck? And yet because of Christ, you have deep, profound hope in the middle of the mess, that you are not abandoned, that you are not just privy to the powers of humanity and what they do. Actually, what he's saying is that in Christ, they can come against you, the storms can blow, but you know that in him, you are secure. 
And those things do not have to define you. They don't have to define you. They don't have to define you. All through Scripture, in, when it's talking about this sin, like when you read chapter 11 and 12, it's interesting. It keeps calling Bathsheba Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife, until the very end. And at the end, it says Bathsheba. That there's a sense that Christ is coming to redeem that curse, redeem the curse of the Lord, redeem the curse of men. He's coming to redeem that. He's coming to restore it. He's coming to renew it. He's coming to bring a better kingdom because he's a better David. He is what David was supposed to be. He is that because he chooses obedience. And the question for us is, what are we doing? And I'm going to say this, and again, we're getting heavy. But I felt this morning in prayer, I felt like the Lord was saying that there are some men in here who are on a rooftop. Get off. Get off the rooftop. Get back to following Jesus, to doing the work you were called to do. Get back to recognizing that it is only in weakness before God that you will truly find strength to break that curse. Then there's another word. And this word is to, this word is to the Bathshebas, to those people in this room who are sitting there saying, what the heck? What is going on? Where is God in my situation? And this is what I love about Bathsheba. You see, David goes through this incredible process where he gets rebuked and he repents. And through that repentance, we see this powerful thing where she goes from being Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife, in, the, in chapter 12, verse 24, after this whole thing with David and Nathan and repentance, in 24 it says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Can you see the redemption in this? Can you see the fact that here's this woman who's had this stuff stripped from her, that she's been sort of abused by a person in power, that David took advantage of that situation and she's been through all this stuff. She's lost that son, like there's consequence for sin. That son has died. And now through this whole process of mourning and grief, it's like she has cried her last tears. Everything's dried up. She's a broken woman. And through this process of repentance, through this process of God's grace, through the Spirit just ministering to her, we get to a point where David doesn't lie with her. He makes love to her. Can I tell somebody in here that God can redeem a broken relationship? It's awfully quiet in this church. God can redeem a broken relationship. God can bring love where there is no love. God can restore that which is broken. That is his business. That is his business. That is what he does. He comes and he, by choosing death, by obedience unto death, he restores humanity and he can restore our relationship if, like David, we are willing to be truly repentant and seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us. And I want us to understand something when it comes to, I'm just throwing a lot of stuff out here, I know that, but I hope something's clicking with you, but 
We had our, our beautiful daughter, Mabel, she got into some trouble recently where she made a bad choice. We call it a red choice. She made a red choice. And you know when kids, those of you who have kids, sometimes kids fight and you say, say sorry to each other. And they look at each other and go, sorry. They're not really sorry. There's a difference between just being like, sorry, because I'm forced to say sorry, and deep, genuine repentance. Now, when we went through this process with Mabel, oh my goodness, I've never seen someone more repentant in my life. She wept for about two straight days. She was genuinely broken. Genuinely broken. Genuinely, I'm so sorry. I will never do it again. And she won't. But do you know why she won't? Not because she was afraid of what mummy and daddy might do. The reason was because she knew deep within herself that she'd sinned against God. She had a deep sense within herself that what she had done broke that moral law and she did not want a part of that anymore. And so the weeping and the brokenness just brought this freedom for her. And the same is true for us. That God, when he calls us to repentance, it's not a Bible smashing you on the head saying, behave! It's a revelation of the love of God. It's a revelation of the magnificence of God. Have a look at what David does in Psalm 51. Can you go there with me? Simon, can you get that up on the screen? And Band, you can come up. This is David after after he's gone through this, Nathan has come to David and rebuked him. Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your, what? According to your, un- so it's not have mercy on me, O God, because you're a really powerful God and I'm terrified that you're going to destroy me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and sin is always before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict, justified when you judge. And he carries on. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed Rejoice, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressions your way. He's just straight on to mission. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no constantly sitting under guilt. When there is that deep repentance, we come into revelation of the love of God that is in Christ because Christ chose that suffering on our behalf because He was the better David, because He did what David was supposed to do. He did the Uriah Act. He was obedient even unto death to bring us life so that when we fall, when we make mistakes, when we stuff up, when we cause harm on someone else, when we suffer harm upon ourselves, that doesn't define us. The love of God in Christ defines us. 
He's chosen us. He's renewed us. He's refreshed us. He's restored us. And He says, now go. In that knowledge of freedom, it's for freedom that you have been set free. This is the gospel. This is grace. And so some of you, if you're feeling a bit like David this morning, know that the grace of God is real and it is for you. And all He's requiring of you is just that moment of, oh God, I have sinned against you and you alone. And if you're feeling a bit like Bathsheba this morning, I just want to speak to you and just tell you that God loves you. And as we have said all series, the evidence of that is a cross. The evidence of that is nail-pierced hands. The evidence of that is a God who would suffer even unto death for His people, that His people might know life and know joy. You are not alone. He is with you. Even in the midst of your greatest turmoil, He is there for you for all eternity. He loves you. He is championing you. And here's the last thing as we close. Nathan. Nathan. It says that the Lord sent Nathan to David and then he tells him a parable and then he calls David on it. And he says in verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. He just gives him a warning. And then David said to Nathan, this repentant moment, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on. But I just felt like there was a word in this for this church, for the church, that the church is called to be a Nathan. Too often the church acts in that position of power and hurts people. Our job as a church is to... Is to come before the people of God and be the people of God, to come before the world and be the voice of God, the hands and feet of God. And when we're looking at this, where is God when God is absent? Where is God in the child dying of starvation? Where is God in the, the child whose father has abandoned him at seven and he's lonely? Do you know what? God is saying, I've already sent you. I've established my church so that you would be my hands and feet, so that in the middle of that yearning and that longing, that that person would turn and there would be the church. There would be Nathan bringing that word. There would be the church saying, arise and shine, like speaking life into situations, being God's very hands and feet. Are you with me? And this is why Isaiah in in chapter 60, he says, arise and shine for the glory of the Lord is upon you. This is a powerful word that the church would stop sitting in comfort, but that we would get up and be the kingdom in a broken world, bringing life, bringing hope, shining the love of Christ on every situation. That's what we're called to do. Would you stand to your feet? In a minute, I'm going to invite Beck up. And Beck's going to share a bit of her story and, <coughs> and lead us in communion as a time of response. And as we do that, 
I just feel to offer a space for prayer. If anyone wants prayer, if you want to, whatever that might be, maybe that's for you, that moment of repentance, maybe for you, that's, you just need some encouragement. You need to know that God is with you. I don't know what it is, but I feel like to offer that space of prayer. Because I feel like God is, this is a word for, for everyone. That God is in the business of making mosaics. He's in the business of bringing beauty out of brokenness. He's with you and he's for you. So I'm going to pray, we'll sing a chorus, and then Beck's going to come and she's going to lead us. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for Matthew chapter 1 and a genealogy. Thank you that you show us that you are unlike the kings of this world, but you are better. Your kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Your kingdom is a kingdom of grace. Your kingdom is a kingdom of repentance unto life, of redemption, restoration, renewal. This is your kingdom. This is your call. This is what you're leading us into. So God, as we sing this song, for everyone here, whatever they're going through, we just want to declare that you are a good father. Because you do not forsake the broken, but you redeem the broken. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. take a seat if you like. I, uh, a few weeks ago I was asked to share my testimony. I was a little bit excited at first to share with you all the place from which I praise. And also, um, for some of you who don't know me that well, um, sometimes all you might see of me is up here leading you in worship. So it's um, an honour to share you a little bit more about my story and the place where I come from to lead you into the courts of our King. Uh, to praise and to sing. Um, and then I was a little bit daunted because today's Beth Sheba's Sunday and she's got a really heavy story. Um, but when you sit with someone long enough, you can always find something in common. And so I've sat with Beth Sheba now for a couple of weeks. And um, while our stories are not similar in structure, I can find common ground in the effects that life's events have had on us and also of that feeling of being in the hands of the master craftsman. But firstly, I can sympathise with Bathsheba, but adultery and murder is not my backstory. I am grateful to have a loving husband of nearly 12 years, whose heart I trust to follow the Lord. There are many aspects of Bathsheba's story that I can identify with, and I reckon if Bathsheba was here today, we would have had a, a really long cuppa and quickly established that this world is not as it should be. The decisions of mankind now mean that this world is fallen. Fallen from joyful obedience to God's loving design for our lives. Fallen from our full reflection of his likeness. And fallen from friendship with God. Which means that this world is now diseased and decaying in both body and personality. So this world is not as it should be. And living in this fallen world means that we struggle with sin and the effects of a decaying world every day. And for Bathsheba, it caused a king to take what was not his, for a faithful wife 
to lose her marriage and future with her rightful husband. And for me, seven years ago, we were told that it would be impossible for us to have children. Thought I'd get a bit further in than this. <laughs> um, like Bathsheba, we didn't ask for this and we didn't tempt it and we didn't seek it. And like Bathsheba, the future we'd planned was taken by an enemy who comes to steal, kill and destroy. As I, um, I guess I, um, Bathsheba and I, we both know the full impact of living in this fallen world, living in a world that is not as it should be, a world that by nature is broken, but not without hope. As I parallel Bathsheba's life with mine, there are a couple of uh, key points I wanted to share with you this morning. The first is that Bathsheba suffered in silence. In the space of nine months, Bathsheba grieves her marriage, her husband and a child and possibly her purity as well. The text doesn't give us much on Bathsheba's grief. In 2 Samuel 11:26, it simply says that she mourned for him. She mourned for her husband. In 2 Samuel 12:24, it says that David comforted Bathsheba. We learn all about David's grief. In verses 16 to 23, we learn how David went without food for seven days. He laid on the bare ground and then he washed and went to worship the Lord. But Bathsheba, she seems to suffer in silence. I know what it's like to suffer in silence. To bear pain until your heart aches. To cry until the tears burn your face. To sit on the floor completely consumed. And sometimes even hide the pain from the ones you love the most so you won't cause them any further sorrow too. So I understand a grief similar to Bathsheba's. Losing the future she planned in her mind. Grieving telling your family you're pregnant. Grieving discovering what character traits your children will have. Grieving first steps and first words. And passing on an inheritance. Grieving at no fault of your own. What I noticed, though, is that Bathsheba gave a voice to her pain. She sent word to David that she was pregnant. There's a cry for help. It took us about three years before we were able to tell some trusted friends about our pain. Three years of limping broken. Three years not allowing the body of Christ to be the body. My encouragement to you is if you're struggling... And if you're suffering in silence, find a trusted friend. Find a prayer warrior. Find someone who's been on a similar journey to you and talk. Give a voice to your pain and let it out of your weary body. Because we're not designed to carry pain alone. Which is why God's design for church is the body. Please let it carry you. And when we share... The door that shuts the pain away opens and a new word and a new encouragement and a new hope can flow in and take its place. And this leads me to my second point, which is something had to die so something new could awaken. In Bathsheba's story, we see the fruit of sin, that's the child of David's adultery, became sick and died. 
God's mercy, he took the child home and it saw an end to the chapter. From the ashes, Bathsheba conceives again. This time they are in the obedience, they were in obedience to the Lord. They were in the covenant of marriage. What we see next in 2 Samuel 12, 24 is that they, David and Bathsheba, named their son Solomon, which in Hebrew means peace. At last, after a rocky 18 months, we're doing some quick maths, they had received an earthly peace, which was their Solomon, and also a spiritual peace. They were restored with God. God had seen Bathsheba's grief, her obedience, her faithfulness to serve, and provided her with a full measure of peace. For Bathsheba, something died, so something new could awaken. One afternoon, seven years ago, I picked up my guitar and I started to praise for hours and hours, day after day. Mixed with my praise was also my cry for help for the master craftsman to take something from my mess. It's obvious that I don't have my earthly Solomon yet and only God knows if I ever will. But somewhere in the last seven years, he has given me a spiritual peace and a kingdom perspective. The thing I have learned about being broken is that it provides opportunity for God to rebuild and include new kingdom pieces. Where bitterness once resided, peace now lives. And where resentment was taking hold, joy now dwells. While he's working, even if we can't see the result of his work, we need to be praising. Praising cleanses our heart. It cultivates the soil for the things of the kingdom to take root. For me, I've seen my plans had to die so something new could awaken. Just a really quick example of the miracle work of the Holy Spirit to change your heart five, six, seven years ago, any announcement of someone's pregnancy, even a Johnson & Johnson ad for some baby cream would send me to the floor most of the afternoon in tears, insoluble grief. But now, even as fresh as last week, <laughs> in a conversation I had with someone here, those conversations now point me to the promise God made to mankind where he said in the covenant of marriage there would be life. And if he said it, he meant it. And if he meant it, I can claim it as truth over my life. So I'm grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit and what he's done in my heart. Because five, six, seven years ago, I wasn't leading like I was. I wasn't leading you into the courts of the King with praise from my heart. And the work of the Holy Spirit has enabled me to do that. But while I know God cares about the desires of my heart, I know he cares far more about the condition of my heart. And if my earthly Solomon miracle doesn't come, what if God doesn't answer my prayers? What if he doesn't move my mountain? He needs to be enough. Jesus needs to be enough. And the Holy Spirit has totally changed my heart. So I can stand here and confidently say, with not a tear in my eye, that Jesus is enough for me.
Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba and Mary's lives show us that God allows brokenness because He can craft a kingdom purpose from it. It hurts and it's messy. It can take years before He lets us see just a glimpse of the mosaic He's crafting from our broken lives. But we can take heart. Who would have thought from Matthew chapter 1? For from Tamar's inclusion down the generations to Mary, we finally see what He was crafting from these broken lives. And we see Jesus. We see His obedient life, His death on the cross, His resurrection and victory over sin and death. Something had to die so something new could awaken. With the conquering risen Son seated at the right hand of the Father, we now see the Holy Spirit flowing like a mighty river through this parched land. He flows so that every heart would know that even though the world is not as it should be, that is not how it has to stay. He offers peace and joy in our brokenness. The master craftsman will take our brokenness via the kingdom and ensure that it has purpose. As you take the bread and cup this morning, remember that Jesus, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made and he made it for you. Remember his victory and that he came to bring life with joy and abundance. If you would like prayer as you make the trek to communion this morning, Charlton and I would love to pray with you. And uh, the elders and um, pastors will also be available for prayer as well. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.